from Romans 13, 11 to 14. Romans 13, 11. In this do, knowing that the time, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we've believed. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we again just are grateful that we can gather together in your name. Thank you for all that you have given us in yourself, that we have been blessed, enriched with all the blessings in heavenly places, lavished with the very grace of God. We thank you for um, your indwelling um, presence and the ministry of your spirit to teach us. And we again just want to hear you, Lord, and respond in faith and obedience to all that you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, every good um, doctrinal statement has something to say about what we believe about the future. And the Every Church doctrinal statement, the, which is the, Bible's, the statement for Bernie Bible Church, is no exception. It's been said that a good um, philosophy of history um, will answer three questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? And so the 11th article in our doctrinal statement is answering in part that last question. Where are we going? And it reads, we believe in the personal and premillennial and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the life and service of the believer. Now, a few months back um, in our adult Sunday school class, Jack already, he taught on this article, and so you'd be well served just to find that online, and then you, you could just go home like everybody else that's not here today. Cold morning, nobody wanted, a lot of people didn't get up out from under the blankets, or there's a partial rapture which deals too with the future. <laughs> means, I don't know what that says about us, but we are here. <laughs> so this is not um, complicated, but there are a couple things here that, that um, will necess necessitate some explanation. So first of all, we believe in the personal coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to just take some time with personal, premillennial, and imminent, the first half of this statement. So what this means is, is that we take literally that Jesus will come again to the earth. When um, in Acts chapter 1, at the ascension of Christ, after he had been taken up into the clouds, and um, the apostles were standing around looking into the sky, and a couple of angels showed up, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So it was a bodily, physical ascension into heaven. And he will return in the same way. So that means it will be a bodily return to the earth. And that is the least controversial of the of statements within this statement. So in other words, it's not a spiritual return. It is a literal return. It is, we are not looking forward to an age of spiritual consciousness or societal perfection, as some people do. We do not think that the world is going to be delivered by a new world order. We are not looking for a new age evolution of spiritual consciousness, which again, many people do. But we are looking to the person of Jesus Christ to literally come back to earth again. And he will be the one who sets everything aright. His coming 
will be both in the air and to the earth. And so this is where we have to be a little precise when we say that we believe that Jesus will personally return in the same way that he left. We also understand from the scripture that that return will be in two phases. He will first return only in the air and he will gather up to him all of those who are his at that time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with those in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that's very clear that Jesus will first come in the air and he will gather up or rapture all of those who are alive at that time who have placed their faith in Christ. That is not his personal return to the earth. That it will be the second part of his coming. And there are many references to speak of that. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, would be the first place where that bodily presence of Christ on earth is mentioned. Job 19, 25 to 26, Job says, As for me, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. What an amazing statement. This guy had no Bible, Job. No Bible. And this is the oldest book in the Bible. And Job says, I know that I will see my Redeemer standing on the earth, and I will be in my flesh. And so what he's anticipating is his own resurrection, and that Christ will be on this earth and he will see him in his own resurrected body. Pretty amazing. And then we have all the way to the book of Revelation. The oldest book in the Bible and the last book of the Bible speak of the bodily return of Christ to the earth. And I'll read some of those passages in Revelation a little later. So we believe that Jesus Christ will return to the earth bodily in the same way that he left. Yes, it will be in his glorified body, but it will nonetheless be a physical, literal return of Christ to the earth. We also believe in the premillennial coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a big word. Millennium means a thousand years. And specifically, it speaks of a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, there are three views to the millennium. We, as an E-free church, are pre-millennial. But there is also the post-millennial view and the ah-millennial view. Pre, we believe, pre-millennial, that Christ will establish his kingdom on the earth after first destroying all the other kingdoms. And then he will reign over the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. So where do we get that idea? So this is where if you'll turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. And I saw an angel coming from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. So that's the first place we see the thousand years, the millennium. So Jesus, um, by the agency of an angel, grabs hold of Satan and binds him for a thousand years. Verse 3 he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones and they, 
sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then finally, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So six times in six verses, two through seven, the thousand years is mentioned. So that's why we believe there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. Not complicated. Surprisingly, though, it is complicated for a lot of folks. Now, basic rule of hermeneutics, which is the, the science of the study of Scripture, is when the plain sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense. Okay? I like that little ditty because I can remember that. Okay? When the plain sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense. And that's what we've done in saying that we affirm a premillennial reign of Christ. That, that Christ um, will come before the millennium starts. And he will rule on earth for a thousand years. Now, post-tribulationism believes that Christ comes after the, the millennium. And so they still believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. But they would say, well, but, but the, the thousand year millennium comes first. And then once everything is up to snuff, Jesus comes back to earth. He's not going to come back until we get everything fixed. So post-millennialism, as I said, also believes in a literal reign of Christ on earth. They just think that, that the church is going to bring it about. Now, post-millennialism, it's very difficult for me to say these words because they're more than two syllables. Um, but the post-mill view, so I'll shorten it to two syllables. The post-mill view, glad you think that's funny. Hey, you try saying it over and over again. The post-mill view um, really was knocked out you know, is it, after World War II. World War I put it back on its heels. World War II killed it. Because after that, everybody's going, the world is not getting better. Interesting, after decades of nobody really believing in, in the post-mill view, there is now a resurgence of it. And this would be what's sometimes called theonomy. And it is one of the reformed theology's camp's view of when Christ comes again. And so theonomy is God and law. And so what the theonomist believes is that the goal of the church is to bring God's law back into observance. And so as we do that in enough places, his kingdom will spread around the world and Jesus will come back again because we've ushered in his kingdom. And so you hear a lot of Christians talk about, we need to advance his kingdom. We need to pray for the kingdom to expand. I'm not real comfortable with that language, to be honest. It really is post-millennial language. It's the idea that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. We are not. What the scripture would say is that Christ brings in his kingdom. And he does not use human agency to do this. This is why the prophecies of Daniel are so important because Daniel says that the last kingdom will be the kingdom of Christ and that it, when he comes that, that he will destroy all the kingdoms of the world and his kingdom will become truly a worldwide kingdom. But it's something he does. We don't do it. The, the Jewish Orthodox community, they have understood it the same way. And that's why to this day, the Orthodox Jew is against the state of Israel. Because the state of Israel was formed by the United Nations. 
And their theology tells them that it will be the Messiah who sets up his kingdom, not the United Nations. Now their problem is that they're blending together the state of Israel and the kingdom of God on earth. And that's their problem. Because the state of Israel is not the kingdom of God on earth. But they are correct that the kingdom of God on earth is something that the king is going to establish. We are not going to bring in the king's kingdom. He's going to bring in his own kingdom. Simple as that. So the theonomist, which is a part of Reformed theology, would say that, that we can usher in his kingdom by, by more people coming to Christ, but more than that, by more governments being influenced. And this we see this very strong in the United States. As we see our country departing from Christ and becoming more of a godless society, there are very strong voices out there that talk about the recovery of the Judeo-Christian value, which we all would like, love to see, but, but the behind that is not just that society would do well, but behind that is with the theonomist is that this is what it's going to take for Jesus to come again. And we're going, don't think so. The Bible would indicate that things are going to get worse before he comes again, not better. So World War I and World War II did not shake the premillennialist from his views. Did not disturb us. I mean, it disturbed us, but it didn't shake our theology. Because we understand that the Bible doesn't say things are going to get better and better. The Bible would say that things are going to get worse and worse prior to his coming again. But then there's the Amil view. Ah means no. They don't believe in a literal, physical, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. They believe that the kingdom consists of either the church of this age or of Christ's present rule from heaven over the hearts of, human, uh, the hearts of believing human beings or the future eternal state. So when you trace the history of, of amillennialism, it's very interesting, really pretty amazing. The early church did not start post-mill or amill. Now, the word pre-mill was not used, but in fact, the early church was premillennial. What they called themselves was chialist, because chi is the Greek word for thousand. And this has been documented repeatedly. In fact, a list of historians, church historians, that acknowledged that the early church believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Some of those historians are um, Gibbon, Henry Sheldon, Philip Schaeff, Adolf Harnack, Will Durant. They are, are pillars, huge guys, when it comes to church history, and as well as secular history. And they look back at the history of the church, and they go, there is no doubt the early church believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, and that he would, would, would not that he would come prior to the thousand years starting. That the thousand years would not become first and then his return, but rather they had a premillennial understanding of Christ's return. And then when we read the early church leaders, same view. Papias, the epistle of Barnabas, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and a guy that I'd never heard of, Lactantius. These guys all spoke very clearly that they believed that there would be, that Christ would come again and then there would be a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So why did things change? Because this view, Kyleism or premillennialism, just got kicked out. And by the fifth century, pretty much everybody believed in amillennialism. What happened? The rejection of the pre-mill position began with the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church. And it began with them rejecting the book of Revelation. And they actually called it a book of fables. Now why would they despise the book of Revelation so much? And in fact, they, were, they successfully, the Greek Orthodox Church successfully, for three or four hundred years, cut out the book of Revelation. It was not in their Bible. 
And then in the Middle Ages, they reinserted it. But there were three or four hundred years there, they said, not in our Bible. Why would they do that? And this is where it gets very interesting. And I'm very indebted here, by the way, to the, to the author Reynolds Showers. And he's written a couple books on the early history of the church. One where he brings in, incorporates some of these thoughts is his book called There Really Is a Difference. Highly recommended. Our second year students have just finished reading it. And it's about the, just showing a comparison and an ex explanation of covenant theology and dispensationalism. And another book that he's read is talking about replacement theology. And in that, he goes back and shows the history of the church and the anti-Semitism that was there. Now, that's very important for us to know. I went all the way through Bible college and seminary and never had church history taught in a way that revealed the anti-Semitic history of the church. And that was to my loss. And you read Reynolds Shower's book called The Coming Apocalypse, which is a study of replacement theology, and it is appalling what the church has been guilty of. And it, well, one of the things that, the, that, that he points out is they hated the book of Revelation for one simple reason. It clearly gives a future to Israel. And they hated the Jews. And they did not want to see a future for the Jew. And so, it was, in fact, they called it the book of, of Jewish opinion. They called, they called Kyleism, premillennialism, a Jewish opinion. Well, yes, it was a Jewish opinion. But on the basis that it was Jewish, they said, we want nothing to do with it. Astounding. Horrible. There were other factors that contributed to this as well. Premillennialism or Kyleism was identified with the Montanist. Who are they? Weird people. They were ascetics. They did not believe in art. They sought martyrdom. Who does that? It must be why there aren't any around today. <laughs> they emphasized emotions. They practiced glossolalia. And because they were so extreme and so emotional and so erratic, and yet they believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, they just said, we want nothing to do with those people. And so the Eastern Church rejected Kyleism, premillennialism, in part because it was a view that the Montanists held to. Some in the Eastern Church viewed that this Theology that gives a reign, a literal reign of Christ on earth would bring persecution to them because the Roman Empire would see it as a threat. And they didn't want to incur, incur persecution. They say, let's just leave this alone. There was also the influence of Alexandrian philosophy, which became Alexandrian theology. And with this philosophy, Greek philosophy, they made a separation or a dualism between what is spiritual and what is physical. And they said what is spirit is good and what is physical is bad. A physical reign of Christ with physical blessings on earth? No. Never happened. It's not good. And surprisingly, the church allowed itself to become influenced by pagan philosophy. It's still there today. And... And so it, it, it's, there are many theologians, highly respected theologians, that embrace this Alexandrian theology or dualism and with this emphasis on the spiritual and also an emphasis on mysticism. And then one of the biggest influences in the departure from Kyleism to Amillennialism was a guy named Origen. And he developed the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. So he is spiritualizing the text. Now here's an interesting factoid for you. If you get out your concordance, and one that's, you know, that you have to open it up, not just on your app, but you get out a, a, a book. We have some back here if you haven't ever seen one. Um, and you can look up, find the word Israel, or Israel in the possessive, Israel's, or Israelite. Any of the references to Israel. 
There are 77 references to Israel in the New Testament. Just the New Testament, 77. Now, to be an amillennialist, you have to find at least one of those references that means church and not Israel. And the key one they use is the one that we looked at this morning in the adult Sunday school class from Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God. That is the best verse that they can come up with, and it's the only verse that amillennialists agree on that where the church means Israel. But here's the thing. If the plain sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense. And every single reference to Israel in the New Testament makes perfect sense as Israel. There is no place in the Bible where a Christian is called a spiritual Jew. Doesn't happen. Only Israel is ever called Israel. And, and Christians, Gentile Christians, are never called spiritual Jews. We are called sons and daughters of Abraham, but we are not called sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is what you have to be to be Jewish. And we are not that. So the amillennial view was propagated largely by this guy, Origen, who can't get there without spiritualizing the text and not taking its plain meaning. So if you didn't have this alternate way of reading the text, you would not have amillennialism. It's as simple as that. If I tell our students, second year students, if you were to take a course in hermeneutics at a reformed seminary and take a course in hermeneutics at a dispensational seminary, the course would be exactly the same, except when it comes to Israel. That is enlightening. Because, when it, because they would tell you in both seminaries, we believe in a literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. Both seminaries would say the same. Words should be taken in their normal meaning according to the context. Both seminaries would say the same. But the Reformed Seminary is going to be amil. And when it comes to Israel, they were going to say, we have a double hermeneutic. And some of them are honest enough to call it that, a double hermeneutic. You have to spiritualize Israel to get to amillennialism. There's no other way. So the Greek church also rejected the book of Revelation, and Dionysius was the principal influence in the rejection of Revelation. And again, he did so because of his, for anti-Semitic reasons. In the Western church, pretty much the same, except the movers here were Jerome and Ambrose. And they declared, Jerome actually came out and said that he had personally been delivered from Jewish opinions and he ridiculed early premillennial beliefs. Whatever you want to call it, that is not a scholarly argument. That is a prejudiced argument. The teaching of Augustine, or Augustine, also was a major factor. He started out as a premillennialist. He believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But he changed away from that. He was the first to teach that the church is the kingdom of Christ, and that it began with the first coming of Christ, and the church is now the kingdom of Christ, and we are now ruling with Christ. We are now ruling with Christ, is what amillennialists believe. He was also influenced by Greek philosophy, which led him to reject the physical blessings of the kingdom. So he didn't believe that there would be a literal kingdom with physical blessings on earth. He saw the kingdom as being spiritual in nature. That is amillennialism. Now I have to say, when amillennialism first started, they said that the spiritual kingdom would last for 1,000 years and then Jesus would return to earth. So the spiritual kingdom is, is right now and it will last only a thousand years, and then Jesus comes. Well, 1033 A.D. came on the calendar, and Jesus did not come. So they got rid of the literal 1,000 years, and now it is a non-literal, spiritual coming, or, or reign of Christ, which will ultimately be culminated by Him coming, but that might not be until the eternal state. 
which gives us so much hope. In order to avoid the physical implications of millennial passages in the Bible, Augustine, Augustine, accepted Origen's allegorical method of interpretation. He taught that Satan being cast into the abyss for a thousand years, because that's one of the problems with Amil. Because you read, what do you do with, if you, you either cut out the entire book of Revelation or you spiritualize the parts that you don't like. So you come to Revelation 20 and six times in six verses, it talks about a thousand year reign of Christ. What do you do with that if you're Amil? Because Satan said, it says in those verses, Satan is bound. Well, you look around the world today and Satan doesn't look very much bound. So this is a problem for amillennialism. So Augustine solved the problem by saying that Satan being cast into the abyss was him being cast into humanity. That lost humanity is the abyss. Well, it sure looks like an abyss sometimes, but that's not what the text says. And that for a thousand years, he is cast into the lost abyss of humanity, and, and then he, and while he's in that abyss, he is kept from harming believers and he is unable to seduce the church. Well, that's not true either. He believed that the binding of Satan is a reality during the present church age. And it was Augustine's allegorical method that became the official doctrine of the church. The Roman Catholic Church strongly advocated and maintained Augustine's amillennial view throughout the Middle Ages. Many Anabaptists were premillennial during the Reformation. The Lutheran Reformed and Anglican Reformers rejected premill as being Jewish opinions in favor of amillennialism. Now, amill faded during the 17th century and afterwards because there was a interest at that time, the age of enlightenment, on science. And interesting, as the world started taking an interest in science and in the physical laws of this universe, they also became more literal in their dealing with the world because they're going, this is a physical, literal world. And that emphasis on the, on the literal and on science actually hurt amillennialism because it's all about the spiritual. And they're going, we don't live in a spiritual world, we live in a physical world, one that we can see and touch and handle. And so in the church, it began to, to move away from amillennialism because of the rise of scientific enterprise, endeavor. Amill came back when everybody that had been a post-mill Abandon it. You're saying with me? So you, the pendulum is swinging, okay? So Amil, gone because of the scientific revolution. And so where do people go that were Amil? Post-mill. Post-mill, dominant view until World War II. And they go, that's not working. So where do they go? Back to Amil. The pendulum never stopped at pre-mill, okay? Amil, post-mill, Amil again. And that's where most of Christianity is today in the Amil position. Now, we don't see this so much in the States. We're starting to see the Amil grow because, because the church in the United States is becoming more influenced by Reformed theology. But during much of the 20th century, the church in the United States was being very influenced by dispensationalism and by key players like D.L. Moody. Billy Sunday, and other evangelists of the time, they were all premillennial. And then there was the rise of over 80 Bible colleges and seminaries in the United States, and almost every single one of them were premillennial. And so then there were, and there were Bible studies, um, study Bibles that were putting out that were premillennial. And so during the, most, the majority of the 20th century, the church in the United States was very premillennial. But what was happening here wasn't happening so much in Europe. And so when we get students at His Hill from Europe, invariably, they will be amillennial. And, and somewhat so in Canada as well, though not as much. 
So the amillennial came back when folks departed from the post mill and its emphasis on the literal physical kingdom and the world getting better. The thinking was that the mistake of the post mills was to take the prophecies too literally. So that's why they swung the pendulum back to amill because it spiritualizes everything. You just wish people would just open up their Bibles and take it for what it says. Because I'm telling you, when the plain sense makes sense, you don't have to seek any other sense. And all of this is being influenced by, po by politics, by world events that are going on, by, by science, by philosophy. I haven't said anything about people being influenced by the scriptures. Amillennialism and postmillennialism did not arise because this is what it plainly says in the text. But rather they're being influenced by worldly influences around them at the time. I hope that doesn't sound too biased, but that's just my, search, my research, that's what it comes down to. The premillennialist, the early church, the very early church was just saying the scripture says there will be a thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, they were post-millennialist. Edwards was convinced that the settlement of the New World, America, was a significant development toward the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, it was post-millennial thinking that aided the spread of America's 19th century doctrine of manifest destiny. Did you know that? That Woodrow Wilson and others um, Prior to Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations after World War II, but, but the thought that we need to spread from coast to coast, and it was post-millennial thought, that the kingdom of God, we can spread God's kingdom through what we do. It's the same thing that, that John Calvin was saying with Geneva. If we can make Geneva totally 100% Christian, we can spread the influence of this city around the world, and we will bring in the kingdom of Jesus. That is post-millennial thought. We are premillennial. We simply believe that the scripture means what it means. That there will be a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And Jesus comes before that kingdom starts. We believe in the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. It doesn't mean immediate. Immediate means right now. Imminent means could be right now, not necessarily right now, just could be at any time. So what practically does that mean? What we believe is that there is not a single prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to rapture the church. Now, there are many prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled before Jesus comes to the earth and sets up his kingdom. So when we talk about the imminent return of Christ, we are actually speaking of his return in the air, not his return to the earth. To return to the earth, there has to be a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. There has to be an antichrist. There needs to be a temple for the Antichrist to go in and set himself up as God. There are a number of things that have to happen before Christ comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. But in terms of the rapture, nothing needs to take place. That he could return in the air for the church at any moment. And as I read my Bible, this is what the New Testament writers all believed. Paul is the best case in point where he wrote both in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And in both places he says, we shall not all sleep. We, speaking of his own generation. He says, it, to him it looked like we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he will come for us. That's a reference to the rapture. But you can go through and the writings of not only Paul, but Peter, John, James, and the writer of Hebrews all expressed an expectation of an imminent, in their lifetime, return of Christ. We see phrases like, coming quickly, standing at the door, it is the last hour, 
He who is alive will be caught up in the air. Be steadfast, immovable. But let me just read some of these verses. Acts 1.11. He will return in the same way. Romans 13.11-14, which I read this morning. It is the hour to awaken. Salvation is nearer now than when we believe. Now what does that mean? I mean, Paul is writing and says, we are closer to the return of Jesus than we were to when we believed. Salvation is nearer now than when we believed. Night is almost gone. Day is at hand. Clearly, Paul believed nothing needed to happen for the church to be taken out. 1 Corinthians 15, we won't all sleep. Some will be changed. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for His Son from heaven. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.37, in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. James 5.7.9, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is right at the door. 1 John 2.18, it is the last hour. 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is at hand. So many verses, each of the New Testament writers, they really lived expecting that Jesus could come at any moment. Which brings us to the last part of the 11th statement. And that this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the life and service of the believer. If you believe in a post tribulational rapture of the church. You believe that you will go through the tribulation before the rapture takes place. That's not a very happy thought. But that's not my reason for rejecting it. There are a lot of things I believe that are not happy thoughts. But why live expectantly? Why look eagerly for His return? if we're going to have to go through the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen. And yet, over and over again, the New Testament writers tell us to wait eagerly. But if you have to go through the tribulation to get there, man, that's, that's, a, that's a tall order. That's a tough call. This blessed hope that's put in parentheses, in, in quotes, I'm sorry, in our statement, is from Titus 2.13, where... Paul wrote and said, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The conviction that Jesus could return in the air at any moment for His bride, the church, will have significant bearing on how the believer lives his life. Just to read some verses again on that. What I believe about the return of Christ and I believe the early church writers, all of them, believed that Christ could return for the church at any moment. Well, if I believe that and act like it, I mean, if I believe that, I should act like it. I was very challenged in seminary once when a professor um, in his 50s, because I thought he was old, um, and just loved Jesus. And I signed up for all the classes I could get with him not because I understood anything he said, because I couldn't. He was complicated, hard to understand, hard to follow, but he loved Jesus. And I wanted to be with a professor that Jesus was just oozing out of him. And that was the case with him. But I remember he came to class one day and he said, if I were to live each day, and he was just beaming, just because just, just of the joy of the Lord, saying I've just been thinking and contemplating on how it will alter my life to live each day truly gripped by the hope that this could be the day that Jesus comes again. We can't live without hope. And hope is something positive. The hope of the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation doesn't seem very positive to me. It just doesn't give me much hope. When I make comments like this, my mind goes to that book I've referred to before that I read about um, the ship that was locked in the ice down in Antarctica, um, endurance, and how those men were stuck on that ice for weeks and weeks. And Shackelford, the ship captain, got in a small boat with a handful of other men to go to an, an inhabited island and come back with, with help. 
He didn't know whether the men that he left behind, over 100 men, um, would be alive if he ever even got back. Well, he did make it back. And every single man was alive. And the reason was because the man he left in charge, and he purposely chose him, and he says, I'm choosing you. I know that this feels like a demotion, that you ought to be one of the guys that goes with me to find help. But I, he says, it's not a demotion. He says, you're the guy that can keep everybody hopeful. And if they can keep hopeful, they can keep alive. And every day, for all those weeks, they didn't even know if they would ever make it back, but every day that man was in charge said, men, pack your bags. And he would force them to pack up. He says, this is the day. This is the day that our rescuer comes. And then the day that Shackelford finally showed up, that man in charge, he later testified to Shackelford, if you hadn't come that day, I don't think I could have kept those men's hopes up another day. It's an amazing story. What we believe, if we truly believe it, will impact our lives. We talk to our children about the blessed hope of Jesus coming again. They believe it. Driving down the highway one day with our kids, they were just little, in big puffy clouds. And one of the kids goes, Dad, do you think that's the cloud? And I go, what cloud? You know, Dad. You told us. The cloud that Jesus will come back, in, come back on. And I'm going, oh, yeah, I did tell you that, didn't I? <laughs> you know, move on. You know, next lesson in Christianity, right? But not for the kids. They're going, this could be the day. That could be the cloud that Jesus returns on. So many passages here. I won't read, but just a couple of them. From 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. From James, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. From 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about the rapture of the church and the, the, being the twinkling of an eye that we shall all be with him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. All through these passages, it's just amazing. From 1 John 2, 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I could read to you from First and Second Peter as well. From James, again, do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You see the expectancy here, that he's right at the door, that we're re living right on the cusp of the dawn coming. Le Revelation 22, 11 to 12. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. But then again, this from Romans 13. And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousings and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Why would I do that? Because I believe 
that the day is at hand. The hour for us to awaken from the sleep is now. In conclusion, our citizenship is in heaven. It is to be expected that we would eagerly wait for Christ's return. Satan will keep us focused on earth so as to lead us into spiritual lethargy and ultimately to spiritual and moral adultery. There's lots of ways Satan can do that. Worried over our finances, worried about our children, worried about the direction of our nation. And these are legitimate concerns. But Jesus could come at any moment. And when we're tempted to despair and throw in the towel, God is the God of hope. He is promised to not leave us, not forsake us, and He has promised to come soon. And whenever that time will be, it is obviously much sooner now than when the, first, when the early church first came into existence. There is a direct correlation between hope in His return and moral purity. Between hope and taking spiritual initiative. When we lose hope, it's hard to even get out of bed in the morning. All energy goes away. Passion, drive, it all goes away. When we're focused on this world, there is no reason to hope. But that is not our hope, this world. And I, for one, am not hoping that this world is going to get better. I believe that's a delusion. I know from God's word it's going to get worse. But I also know that Jesus could return at any moment. And I know the scripture tells me to look for his return. It never tells me to look for the tribulation. There is not a single tribulation passage in scripture that mentions the church. That's pretty good evidence we're not going to be here. The Bible says, look for Jesus to come. If Jesus comes after the tribulation, then I'm looking for the tribulation. And I'm never exhorted to look for that. I'm exhorted to look up. Jesus is coming again. I'll pray. We, God, we thank you for these things that we haven't contrived, we haven't made up. We're not just going off of church history, but what you have said in your word. You will come again, and you will reign on this earth for a thousand years. We thank you that your word says that we are to eagerly wait for you, and that that could, your return in the air for us could happen literally at any moment. We long to be with you. But until that time, and we don't know how long it'd be, we don't know what we would have to suffer. But we know, God, because of the hope that we have, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our hope is a sure anchor and it cannot be moved. Thank you, God, that we don't look to the media to tell us what's happening in this world. We know. We look to you and I pray that our eyes would remain fixed on you and on the things above. In Jesus' name, amen.